I said, Dad, you got to, these state sponsors of terrorism and so you, you got to go in, we got to do something about them. You got to go. And he said, You don't go to war unless you have to. And, um, and that was the first sort of registered data point that sort of always stuck in my head, particularly as that went awry. And, uh, and then uh, Donald Trump came along and said some things that were a little shocking to me the first couple of times I heard him from him, but he was right. And I think what happens is you get the same problem with much of Washington. Uh, people who are here get sort of, they spend time here and maybe they think it's a question of expertise, but they get inwardly focused and overly focused on, on issues that are other than the lives of Americans. And it doesn't, it just doesn't serve Americans' interests to go uh, involving the United States in military action all, all over the world. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And Nick, as always, is dressed like a homeless person on our show of very fancy and important people, but that's fine. I you guess. know, my, my, my wife is asking me this morning, she's like, you know, I know you're going to be on with a certain congressman today. Uh, do you want me to pick out your outfit? No, nah, I'm good. I've got it. <laughs> so once again, uh, Nick has been profoundly disrespectful to the kind people that show up on our show and uh, say la vie. Um, no, we're kidding. Uh, it has a collar. It has a collar. That's yeah, that's true. It looks like it's made of carpet. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, this is why you guys should watch on YouTube so you can see the ridiculous things Nick wears while I wear the ridiculous things I wear. I am wearing sneakers, though. Like yeah. that, that part is casual. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we had on a fantastic guest today, but before I get to that, always uh, remember, you need to go to AmericanMoment.org to find out everything that we have cooking. You can find the backlog of this podcast. You can find MCANN, events, news, sign up for our mailing list, do the whole nine, and uh, rate and review this podcast five stars because it really helps us get on fantastic guests like the one we had today. And we had on uh, today a fantastic uh, freshman member of Congress named Dan Bishop. Uh, for those of you who aren't super familiar with Congressman Bishop, he is the U.S. representative for North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. Now, that might change the number in redistricting. It's hard to say. Um, but he's a he's a Republican whose district includes uh, South Central Mecklenburg, uh, Union, Anson, Richmond, Scotland, Robeson, Hoke, and Southern Moor counties. Uh, he previously served in the, That's North the Charlotte area for That's those right. <laughs> not used to North Carolina geography. Yeah, uh, he served in the North Carolina House of Representatives from 2015 to 2017, and the Mecklenburg County Commission from 2005 to 2009 and in the state Senate from 2017 to 2019. So he's had, I think, five elections in five years um, and uh, always competitive ones. But what really distinguishes Congressman Bishop is that he's one of the boldest members of the U.S. House of Representatives um, and was one of the boldest members of the North Carolina uh, House of Representatives. Uh, while he was there, he was the lead author of the so-called bathroom bill. That was this piece of legislation that tried to uh, you know, push back against some craziness that was happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, where uh, the local ordinances were, there were local ordinances being passed that said not only um, if you were a private business that you had to allow transgender people to go in whichever bathroom they so chose, but um, uh, that public facilities would have the same uh, policy. And so uh, he was the lead sponsor on a bill to uh, 
uh, repeal that. And and so he really experienced what was the the first wave or the prologue of what corporate wokeness actually is like. So he exhibited real bravery there, and he's exhibited real bravery in D.C. Um, most recently, I would say, on foreign policy. He was one of the keynote speakers at our conference, Up From Chaos, Conserving American Security. We'll be linking to his speech here in the show notes, but he really has has taken bold stances on everything from culture to foreign policy to trade to immigration. Um, look, uh, we've uh, had on members before. Um, I think this one may have been the best interview of a member we've done yet. Uh, he's incredibly lucid and aligned with us on on the things that, that we care about, that we know a lot of you care about. Um, we know that at least part of the reason why that is is because he's got a whip smart, awesome staff. Um, but but it's it's him. Um, so I just was was floored by what an incredible interview we just had. Nick, what'd you think? You keep calling him lucid. I'm afraid he's going to be offended that you think he's old or something, you know? <laughs> well, it's just that, you know, that building is full of octogenarians who don't know their shoelace from a thimble. And so it's just, it's it's so refreshing to come across a member of Congress that not only believes something, um, so few of them do, but but knows exactly what they're talking about. I mean, it's just, it was incredible. I, I you know, I think the thing that was most striking to me, and we kind of kept coming back to this, topic was that like I almost wanted to be asking him like so you believe that before Trump like <laughs> you've you've always believed this mm-hmm. uh, I think it's so I think it's so yeah. rare that you find um, you know members of Congress or prominent uh, conservatives who have believed these things for a long time yeah. I mean you can look at um, you know just prominent conservatives on Twitter and a lot of them you know are espousing radicalized opinions now that they themselves didn't even believe a year or two ago Mm -hmm. um, let alone before President Trump so I think I was just kind of blown away it's an awesome interview Um, after we you know we record the intro after the interview and I instantly texted my in-laws and I was like who are from North Carolina I was like you guys You've got to listen to this episode. Yeah. This one's going to be great. They're completionists. They always listen. I, they I, do. They <laughs> listen to everyone. I don't really have to tell them, but um, I do anyway because yeah. I'm excited. So anyway, um, you know, look, if you're congressional staff and you think that uh, your boss can can give an interview like Congressman Bishop just did, try to convince them to come on the show. But um, it's a hard act to beat. So we'll go now to Congressman Dan Bishop. Congressman, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Sir Rob. I'm glad to be with you guys. Uh, we always like to hear about how people got to the point where they are today. You've had a career in the private sector and state and local government and, and now the federal level. Walk us through that story. How did uh, Congressman Dan Bishop first get involved in in uh, in trying to help save the country? I think of myself first as a private sector person. I spent 29 years practicing law as a business litigator. But the first uh, venture I had into uh, politics was serving as a county commissioner in Mecklenburg County. That's Charlotte, North Carolina. Served in a minority there for of a nine-member board. We had three Republicans served there for four years. And frankly, I didn't intend to do any more politics yeah. after that and didn't for six years. Uh, there was a, the, actually followed onto that into in the county commission a, a, uh, a district representative who was running at large. That same woman had gone to the state legislature in a surprising sort of way. She decided to leave when she did, opened up her seat, happened to live in her district. She called me and said, ought to think about it. Uh, so I spent uh, uh, one one term in the state house and then went to the state senate, uh, where again that was something I also, frankly, in part of the way through the first ter- term in the state house, I didn't know if I wanted to do any more state legislature. But there was a state senator I had tremendous respect for, been a mentor to me, and said he's resi- he's going to retire from his seat 
uh, please run. And he actually kind of had to talk me into it. But uh, I'm glad that he did. It was it all, it's funny how I, at this point in time, looking back at it for me, uh, I'm convinced that God's called me to do what I'm doing, that God uh, led me through a path when, and doors swung open in an uncanny way. Uh, and I th- and then some of the experiences I had while I, while I was a legislator, legislator, state legislator, I'm convinced we're preparing me for what I'm doing now. So let's dive into those a little bit. What were the years you were in the North Carolina state legislature? And then what were the big fights, flashpoints that really animated your time there? I was elected to the state house in 2014. So I served beginning, beginning of 2015, uh, elected the state Senate 2016, reelected the only Republican to win an election in Mecklenburg County in 2018. Mm-hmm. And then it was immediately, almost immediately uh, after that session began that the special election for Congress came about and I ran for the ninth district in North Carolina and was able to win. So what what issues motivated you to, to run in that special election? I know that special elections frequently are are very, uh, you know, very contentious, a lot of passions inflamed around the issues. What kinds of things motivated you to run kind of right off the bat there? Yeah, well, Nick, it was a uh, it was a very unusual situation. The, the Republican candidate in that race in the in the 2018 regular cycle, I had endorsed, and uh, he was a good guy. There was a, allegations of ballot harvesting in one remote county in the eastern end of the district. Um, it, it was, you know, the, I think at the end of the day, as I understand it, there were about 13 ballots that were identified as having been inappropriately harvested. He had a 900-vote win, but the— um, it's kind of ironic, given what happened in 2020, that, but his victory was set aside, and he kind of went through the ringer in the process and then decided not to run. Uh, the 9th District of, Nor- of uh, North Carolina had been a Republican district for my entire lifetime. Um, I got a call from the guy who was, who was, was going to receive the endorsement of the candidate who was now not going to run. Uh, and he said, uh, and I said, I, you know, the problem is Democrats had uh, fielded a guy that was spending immense amounts of money. He had gotten through sort of scot-free of any kind of real hard scrutiny, I thought. And um, and he was and I, uh, you know, this person said uh, the former candidate's not going to run. He's going to endorse me. I said, I think that sounds fine. I said, how are you going to compete uh, with the money that's being spent. And he said, I have raised $5,000 for my last race and gave a thousand of it away. I don't need money. Hmm. And I, my immediate thought was we're going to lose the ninth district. And, um, and in that I thought South central North Carolina, uh, would shift. And I think in a persistent way from, uh, red to, to blue, I think it would have been Democrat territory for a long period of time. So, um, I went to my wife and said, Let's run for Congress. And she said, well, I can't say what she said. So she said, no, she said, no. And, uh, but then, uh, my kid was nearby. My, he was then about 20 years old and came in and, uh, I don't know. He, he thought it was a great idea and it just started growing on us. Uh, and I'm, it's, it's been a gift. I mean, there, you know, we're in a very, you know, we have a, a, a very de- divided nation. Uh, I think our culture's under assault. I think our way of life is, is in danger. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to come to Washington and fight over that. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that Americans um, really want they're, – they're desperate for someone who will fight for them. That's what I think Donald Trump signified, and, uh, and they want to see that continue. And, uh, and I intend to deliver that for them. You 
hear a lot of members of Congress who, when they first uh, run for office, they talk about coming to D.C. and being a fighter. And often their track record for, for doing so is spotty at best. But but yours is, I would argue, airtight. During your time in the North Carolina state legislature, you experienced a, a fight that, that I have a little bit of familiarity with because we experienced a similar one in Texas, namely um, this, this rising uh, issue of, of transgenderism and how it interacts with everything from public schools to children um, and the fights that, that come from, from that. Why don't you paint a picture for us of what was that fight that you were involved in on the transgender issue in North Carolina and, uh, and how exactly did that go? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I think, and, and sort of the headline for me is uh, you, uh, you know whether people are, are really prepared to fight by seeing whether they'll um, step into a fight from which they're not expecting an advantage. Then they, and, they, and they expect, frankly, perhaps grievous loss to themselves. Um, in Charlotte, uh, my hometown, a radical leftist mayor was elected. She made it clear all along that her first and, and primary effort was going to be uh, to to um, bring uh, to to um, do an ordinance, a city ordinance that would, and frankly, beyond the power of the city. Uh, North Carolina's fairly limited uh, uh, powers with city. This whatever's been specifically delegated to them by the state legislatures, how it works, basically. But, but she was going to nonetheless pursue an ordinance really radical on sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and the, the way it ultimately got done, I mean, literally on its face, it prohibited separate bathrooms and locker rooms for men and women in the same way that the law forbids separate water fountains for black and white people. Uh, that's how it was. That's how the language, that's how they changed the law to do that. Um you know their purpose and what they spent the time talking about is to allow people who had a, a, a different gender identity could go into the whatever facility they they identified as. Um, I spoke out against that as she was doing, and, and I cer- certainly spoke out against the fact that uh, this mayor, uh, before she was in an office, was was driving at this like she, she had nothing else to think about. Uh, they were the city council was warned by. Uh, the governor by the uh, legislative leadership, they pursued it anyway. So I was on a working group that that uh, that ended up coming together, and we had a special session to deal with it. I ultimately uh, uh, it came to pass that I was the lead primary sponsor of what became known as HB two, and um, and it it and I and I ushered it through the House and the Senate. And, and what did HB uh, two do? HB two it, it had it was some complication because as a matter of fact, we couldn't use a local law just to reverse what the city council had done. So we had to put the state government on record. And what it did was to say that people go that, that in respect for the privacy interests of everybody, people go to the uh, to the restroom or the private facility, locker room, showers, whatever, in a public space in publicly owned buildings uh, that that's associated with their biological sex. And it said, uh, and 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 maybe most importantly of all, whereas that ordinance had put a mandate on, um, you know, tens of thousands of small business businesses of all sizes in the Charlotte uh, area, this removed any mandate from a private business. So, <clears throat> if a private business wanted to adopt that policy, they could, uh, but they weren't going to be doing that by the heavy hand of government. And so that was the that was the bill uh, went through in a special session, and then all the turmoil started. <laughs> so what was that pushback like? When did you first realize there 
there would be trouble in Omaha, to use a yeah. strained analogy. M- media uh, were hysterical. Mm-hmm. There is no balance in state, in large state media. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the significant media outlets in North Carolina do not have any, they don't even have anything like a Fox or, or a Newsmax or something that puts, puts out the other side. And they were, uh, uh, you know, the, the big liberal media powers were relentless. I mean, they, they attacked this as bigoted and, uh, without fail, they, they uh, human rights campaign, the National LGBT Group, and Equality North Carolina, this which is the, uh, they have equality this or that in each of the states. I think uh, they were just relentless and uh, aggressive. A lot of businesses, as has become the fashion, immediately caved and started signing letters and so forth. So HB two. Um, uh, was a law for about one legislative session. I guess I did it, and in, in, it was in my second year of my freshman term in the state house. Uh, I've, Man, I, those senior guys really passed the buck over to you, huh? <laughs> you know they they did, but I, but you know that's I, I think to that point I, I didn't uh, inadvertently stumble into it. I knew what was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it important that someone uh, be prepared to face that and let it be known that i'm not afraid of it and to this day i will say there's a there's one big you know governor pat mccrory was the governor he signed that bill um you know he he equivocated over it almost immediately earning the ire of both sides Mm -hmm. i've never backed away from what we did in hp2 never did and i never will well, I guess I could have some insight that says everything <laughs> I understand to be right or wrong is not, but I don't think that's going to happen. And I'm not going to I'm not going to try to have it both ways. And I think that's very critical to what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the moment that we're in, the need for fighters, someone who has the courage to step up and say what's right and then stand behind it no matter what the pressure is. So you mentioned uh, corporations signing letters and stuff against this bill. From my understanding and recollection uh they did a lot more than that uh, there was a lot of kicking and screaming and 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 hissing um you know it's a, it's amazing to me to think about what uh obergefell was seven eight years ago and how far we've come on a lot of this um not how far we've come in like a positive way yeah. but how bad the rhetoric has gotten yeah. around um you know a lot of this trans uh propaganda essentially um and i think this particular historical moment was kind of it was not the beginning but it was when i first started to notice that a lot of corporations were were all in on not just promoting this stuff but making money off of it um so what were some of the pressure points that that you experienced and that uh members of the republican party in north carolina experienced um from these corporations as a result of this bill? Well, you know, one thing that pops into mind, and it's not a direct answer, but I'll come to your question, was that you had governments, you had municipal and state governments all over in, in the, you know, the, in the blue areas of the country who were banning people from traveling to North Carolina. Yeah. You had, uh, you did, you had uh, entertainers and uh, uh, music and entertainment, so forth in these high profile ways that would say, well, we're off, North Carolina's off limits. We're not going there. PayPal had a had had announced a plan to open up a call center in North Carolina. They canceled the big uh, 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 public announcement of that. So there was, it, it, I will say, PayPal never opened up that call center anywhere. So I think PayPal just didn't <laughs> want to open up a call center as it yeah. turned out, and yeah. it was convenient for them to to turn away. You know, it, um, 
the AP, two idiot reporters for the AP who had no economics experience, did a sort of a back of the envelope analysis and suggested that the the HB two had cost the state three point seven billion dollars. A couple of years later, uh, at the request of a former legislator, I asked the fiscal staff at the legislature to do an analysis and see what had happened. And they said that n- no impact on North Carolina's uh, financial circumstances mm. was detectable from from the data that were available. They they're and they're economists. Yeah, <laughs> they actually knew. Um, you know, so I, there were there were, there was great hysteria and uh, efforts to. The, I'm sorry, I left one out. The NBA mm. uh, moved their All Star game out of out of uh, Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And then came back the next year and had the all started. Uh, they talked about you know impacts on tourism and so forth. But both in the year of HB two twenty sixteen and in the subsequent year, they had um, unprecedented growth in tourism, uh, uh, travel and tourism revenues in North Carolina. So it, you know a lot of the stuff that they go that they do is it has a tremendous hysteria about it, but not much substance. Mm-hmm. Uh, legislative leadership ultimately decided to repeal HB2 to replace it with something that's a little bit less or, or, or a little more uh, less conservative. Well, it was less conservative. It didn't really it was hard to understand what it did, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but and and I voted against that and led a small group that that uh, that resisted it. You know, but one thing that people thought or said um, that I was, I mean, I, people thought in the media, certainly that I was the walking dead because mm-hmm. of, I had been the lead primary sponsor of HB two, but a funny thing happened in that race when I actually, by the way, I had a race in 2016, that year I was elected mm-hmm. to the Senate in 2018. As I said before, I was the only Republican in Mecklenburg County to survive in a, in a race in a bad year for Republicans. Uh, and then in 2019, um, you know, it, it, I think they assumed it, it would, that would never get off the ground. But what I found, and I think it was actually not an issue that my opponent, Democrat opponent, said much about, but I would go down to these rural counties in my district in North Carolina, and they'd say, oh, this is really great, a lawyer from Charlotte, exactly what we need. (laughs) But then someone would tell them, well, this is the guy who is the lead primary sponsor of HB2. And and, and I never said a word about it. It wasn't an issue in that Mm -hmm. campaign. But I think it helped me. I don't think it hurt me. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a great lesson in that. Mm-hmm. Have the courage to do what you know is right. You may find that it's not. it doesn't lead you to your destruction. And if it does, so be it. There's some people, many, many soldiers have died in the service of this country, uh, a service mm-hmm. in, in defending our freedoms. It would not be the worst thing for some politicians to lose their offices, <laughs> yeah, uh, because of because they've stood up for 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 freedom and and, and rights. That's what I did. It turns out that uh, conservative voters actually want conservative representatives. That's uh, <laughs> what a shock! Right? I, mean, I know. Who would have Who would have guessed? Yeah, these corporate bullying tactics are fascinating to me because it felt like the playbook was established in North Carolina that year on what are the different pressure points that corporate America will use um, to go after, um, you know, Republicans, uh, usually Republicans, conservatives and state legislatures that try to do basically anything, whether it's something on sanctuary cities, on transgender issues, on critical race theory, what have you. What was that like at a at a micro level, you know, what was it uh, that changed materially about your experience as a state legislator, your colleagues' experiences as state legislators? You know, what did the lobbyists in town start saying? What 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 happened to the campaign checks? You know, what was what was that side of things like? You know, and last thing you said, campaign checks. I, I I'll tell you this. I, I think, given who I am, this is another thing that's probably important for at least politicians like me to remember. 
uh, given what I've always, I've always identified more with ordinary folk than I do with somebody running an enormous business. Mm-hmm. I really do think the principle should that when you take care of ordinary folk, it should work for the advantage of, of businesses as well as often as the business isn't corrupt. Um, but I, I never, so when I would raise money, I would raise money from people. Now there are some business owners and so forth that give me money, but they're probably smaller businesses typically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I didn't, I don't, you know, I, um, I didn't find myself shunned by, by those people. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there obviously were, uh, some, there were some, I mean, my wife got anonymous, uh, and semi-threatening letters, mm-hmm. uh, to her. Uh, I had, uh, you know, just the, 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 the sheer, I, I, uh, it's hard to shock me. Probably it was already hard to shock me. I'd been in a confrontational business, mm-hmm. uh, so I wasn't likely to crumble under uh, pressure. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know the 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 uh, the emails and and so forth that you saw, it, it you get an idea of who you're up against, yeah. and uh, you might as well know. They don't. They didn't bother me very much. I mean, there were probably days when it would just come in like a gale, mm-hmm. and there were moments I'd be staggered or temporarily uh, disheartened. But it didn't last. And I think that's another thing you need. If you're going to fight, you're going to have to have some resilience yeah. and uh, get up the next day and go after it again. Uh, and so that's what I did. But as I say, the, um, uh, you know, I've now had, I guess, two more, well, uh, at least three elections, four in 2020 and then another one this year. I'll, I'll have had five elections after HB2 and, 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 uh, and I've done five. Uh, so I think that's that's something for people to remember. And it's important to remember these are not – you know, you didn't come from R plus 20 districts all the way down. You've you've had competitive races in almost every single race. And you've said who you are and the voters have said, sure, sounds great. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I will say I don't I'm not reticent about criticizing somebody who's an opponent if they have things over, over which they should be criticized. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're going to we should join issue. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And um, and I and that's right. Uh, the the district that I won the special election in in 2019, I say I have won it. I didn't win it by myself. The you know, the, uh, uh, I'm not sure what it was up against a tremendous you know, I had a 10 way primary. Uh, one with 48 percent of the vote out a brilliant strategist who'd led me through that. Um, I, uh, but I, but again, I, I did, I did sort of face the music and I didn't hide from it. Um, 48 percent of the vote in the 10 way primary. Yeah, My that's and, nuts. And, and then in that general, I mean, so I'd spent what I could raise uh, doing that, and and so I'm up against a guy who's spending millions, and mm-hmm. I, and I started drifting down in the polls. I think when President. Trump, when the White House decided to help with that special election, um, and subsequently so did NRCC and and uh, McCarthy's PAC, uh, you know, I and by the I think I'd come back up. But I mean, when when the president, no White House in history would have gotten involved with a candidate who was down nine and a half. Mm-hmm. That's about where I was. Yeah, but Trump was different, and Mark Meadows uh, helped uh, make that decision, and NRCC uh, came in big time, big time. And uh, we went, but but we all together. And I said, I'm not even. I'm leaving out even the most important part. With college Republicans came down and knocked doors. Uh, you know, it was it was, it was just tremendous amount of support. People out in Idaho, Russ Fulcher's district were uh, 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 were um, making telephone calls mm-hmm. into the district. It was an, it was a tremendous outpouring, and uh, and it just and we just toughed it out, and we and we won. So you came to D.C. What's different? <laughs> between D.C. and uh, and the state capital of North Carolina, um, there's a lot of similarity in the, in the <laughs> sense that well maybe I don't it, uh, Washington and in, in Congress I didn't it didn't surprise me uh, Congress is broken 
And not just because Republicans have been in the minority. Republicans have whiffed at the ball multiple times, uh, both under Boehner and under Ryan. Uh, we, we can't afford a third strike. Uh, and I, I do, I'm not surprised by it, but I find that there are, we have our share of careerists mm-hmm. and people who, uh, who are after something other than wanting to fight to save the American Republic or don't see the, the, um, perhaps they don't see the danger to it in the way that I perceive. They don't know if, if it, it, they, you know, but, but I, I do. And I think, uh, it's become clear to me, I, you know, I've, I've watched what you guys do. I've watched, um, uh, you know, I think of Chris Rufo for, as one example, a guy who had taken on, you know, critical race theory. We were told, my staff and I were hearing word from, you know, Republicans should run run away from critical race theory. Don't get involved in that. And, I, and after a little bit of discussion, I said, oh, well, that's exactly what we're going to get <laughs> And And I think, you know, if you watch Rufo, you watch R- Ron DeSantis, uh, there's, a new, there's a new phenomenon in these corporate you know, pressure campaigns that we, and, and that is a, a little bit of a stiff upper lip, a little bit of a tough response mm-hmm. um, changes things dramatically. Mm-hmm. And I'll say this about HB uh, two mm-hmm. and, and that controversy. I don't, I don't, I don't spend all my time revolving around that, that particular issue. But I would say when you just go and, and you follow that story in, in uh, Loudoun County, Virginia, where mm-hmm. the little 14 year old girl was raped and sodomized in a bathroom where a male was was present who uh because he was wearing a skirt um i i will say i i think i've been vindicated on that point and it, it, it there are lots of other reasons too if you watch matt walsh's uh documentary on what is a woman uh you know uh, we've it, stand up and fight for what you know is right because it is and uh and uh, be prepared to take the bullets that come from it but if whether it serves you or or not it'll serve It'll serve the people of the United States. So we've been hearing all over the all over the news for the last couple of months about uh, the elections in November. Uh, my wife has taken to telling people that we're going to have to name our baby who is due on election day. Uh, the middle name is going to have to be Red Wave. Uh, that's just <laughs> that's going to be just, a great name. Yeah, that's <laughs> just that's just where we're at. Uh, but what? Tactically, is is different about the situation that conservatives are in right now in 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 congress you know um in minority in the house specifically versus where y'all are hoping to be you know in yeah. january of 2023 uh, i you know it, it will be a new experience for me to be in the majority in the house I, and i think uh, obviously every indication is the american people are having plenty of opportunity to regret their votes for joe biden <laughs> and uh and and to uh, you know we gained uh, republicans gained ground uh, significantly in 2020 in the house it's one of the things that was sort of a uh, a, a part of the story of 2020 2020 that that got maybe less didn't really penetrate with the american people that much uh but so it's a very close minority and we have, and, and of course, I join. I want to be on the team with Republicans. I want to, I want to push the team as mm-hmm. hard as I can to do things that are genuine and that take on the serious issues. Uh, but we're hopeful that we'll, and and I expect that we'll have a major, a Republican majority. The, the size of the Republican majority actually is an interesting mm-hmm. uh, prospect because you might think the average person might think, oh, the bigger the better. I'm not so sure about that. The, the folks in the I, I'm a member of the House Freedom Caucus. 
uh, our reason for existing is to uh, try to get the Republican conference to think carefully about what it is doing and to challenge the Republican conference to actually be prepared to make change, mm-hmm. not just drift along and with business as usual, with the massive increasing indebtedness, with the uh, sort of cultural rot that the left has been uh, you know, in, visiting upon America for 60 years or more. Uh, you know, if, in other words, stand up to it. And, um, and, and so I think, interestingly enough, if we have a smaller Republican majority than a massive one, we might be able to be more successful in trying to make urge those changes uh, than would otherwise be the case. It's a very interesting thought. You know, I, I remember not to keep coming back to this HB2 thing, but I find it so interesting. This is, you know, when I was becoming of political age, I guess. I remember a lot of Republicans, especially in Minnesota, you know, Minnesota Republicans, very squishy on this yeah. on this particular issue. Sure. Um, and I think that you to echo your words you've been you've been vindicated on a lot of these issues um so i want to move to kind of other issue areas where else do you think the republican party is, has changed and has shifted since 2015 2016 um maybe some areas that you were working on in the state legislature that you're now you know having the ability to work on in congress but what's what what do you see as having changed well and, and we we touched briefly on uh, what's come to be referred to as critical race theory mm-hmm. and more broadly the notion that uh that at schools public education has become a place where uh, uh students are indoctrinated they, they are they're they're and, and frankly they're being extraordinarily disserved if you look at the situation mm-hmm. with the masking and the and the and this and the remote learning or the uh, where they stayed out of the classroom and in yeah. Charlotte, as compared with some outlying counties back at home, uh, you know the the hyper leftist school board uh, there tried to extend that time when they were out of class as long as possible. The results are devastating in mm-hmm. terms of the uh, capacity of those or the 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 success of those students making progress on reading, on math, uh, and of course grades and so forth. I was in the legislature a big advocate of of uh, uh, choice in education. I uh, continue to be. Um, I I, uh, I think, frankly, we had more to do as Republicans uh, in order to fully advance that, mm-hmm. and I think that's still the case. But that is, in my view, the civil rights issue of this uh, this decade, and um, and I think we need to pursue that more aggressively. We need uh, money. Should follow uh, children. Should be for the uh, support and and uh, education of children, not to sustain systems where that that ultimately become hogtied and shanghaied. Uh, you know, for, <laughs> for the advantage of of uh, of union bosses or the like. And so uh, that's something that has continued. I, um, you know, there, there. I think I I continue to. Uh, um, you know, I, I, obviously, I was on the Judiciary Committee back in the legislature. That's where I, is my what I consider my primary uh, committee assignment here. I'm also on the Homeland Security Committee. I think the contrast in those two committees, how they've run, is illustrative of what of what of the you know the challenges that we face. On the Judiciary Committee, led by Ranking Member Jim Jordan of Ohio, become a really I mean that's one of the things. You know, I'm not a fanboy necessarily, but Jordan's a, a, is is I sort of hero worship Jordan just a little bit. Uh, he fights, you know, 
the the uh, the the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, you do a markup, it might last ten hours or it might last all night because mm-hmm. we fight them uh, before we just let we know the things are rolling through because they've got the votes. But we can offer amendments, we can argue about it and debate it, and we do as hard as we can go. And the American people need to know people are doing that for them. Homeland Security should be exactly the same. Both those committees should be oversight juggernauts in the hands when Republicans mm-hmm. have the gavels next year. Uh, I intend for uh, to do everything I can. I know that Jim Jordan intends to do that. we got some leadership change on Homeland Security. But frankly, leadership in that committee has been um, has been uh, captured by a, 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 a notion of the circumstances that no longer exist or thinking is about 10 years out of date. Back after 9-11. That's generous. <laughs> might be longer. Might be longer. But, at, you know, after uh, September, uh, after 9-11 attacks, uh, the, uh, the some bipartisanship and as that committee was formed, that mm-hmm. made great sense. And you would like it. My goodness, if there's anything that's uh, more significant to have bipartisanship over than than protecting the homeland i can't think what it would be Mm -hmm. but i'm telling you it takes two to play bipartisanship and the left has stopped long time ago so when they're talking about manipulating the tools of homeland security to designate uh, their political opposition as domestic terrorists and so forth Mm -hmm. uh, you better be prepared to fight that and and uh, standing up and fighting instead of sort of you know going along I remember I stood on the floor at one of the I'm sure I've done some controversial things here as well. And standing on the floor when John Katko, the chairman of, or the ranking member on Homeland Security, was supporting creation of a of a 9-11 style commission for for the for the riot on January 6th. Um, I, I said then that he was being played. And uh, and I think what we're seeing with the theater getting ready to just happen and, and this as the hearings finally dawn here, right, as the uh, attempting mm-hmm. to affect politically the elections and never having approached the question of why Nancy Pelosi left the Capitol undefended that day. Mm. Uh, you see a manifestation of how uh, Homeland Security is regarded by the Democrats. They don't they're not interested in protecting the homeland. Look at what they're doing on the border. They're interested in political showmanship and in transforming the country. So let's fight them over it. That's what I say. How do we prevent, uh, you know, I, I think Matt Gates has said that in, in the new Congress, every committee should be an oversight committee. I think that's a great way to think about how Republicans can actually use the electoral resources that they're going to be given here at the end of the year to do something. But, you know, thinking back to the late Obama administration, um, there was lots of, you know, Republicans that that really took the Obama administration to task, took different elect officials or t- took different cabinet officials to task. And it never felt like it really materialized in anything. You know, I don't know how many times we brought Hillary Clinton to D.C. to talk about Benghazi. How do we make sure that we actually are, are, are precise, pointed and impactful in this oversight this time around? That's a great question. And I don't know that I've got all the answers. I will say that, right, every committee ought to be an oversight committee. Three uh, committees ought to focus on it uh, with everything they got. And that's uh, oversight, oversight government reform committee, judiciary and homeland. And those ought to three, they ought to work together uh, hand in glove. Um, I think uh, maybe there were times in which the Obama era investigations seemed to have a uh, a, a show, a for show kind of quality. There, there was a you know we're playing for the base. We want to make sure the base sees us doing something, but we were pulling our punches. 
uh, I think that should stop. I think, uh, as you know, Devin Nunez actually said, uh, came over to a table where I was sitting with several others uh, many months ago, and the, and the only thing, he just stood there silently and he said, the subpoenas go out day one. <laughs> and uh, Devin's not going to be here, yeah. uh, but he's done, you know, and uh, he's done uh, historically great work in his role on uh, the uh, intelligence committee in calling, you know, in discovering the uh, the the hoax that was uh, the substance of the hoax, the, uh, the Russia Russia hoax against uh, the essentially coup attempt against the Trump administration, and uh, very good. But I, I think that's the answer. I think uh, uh, Democrats have uh, have established precedent in a mm-hmm. number of ways and ways uh, people have been treated. And uh, I think we need to do everything in, in a way that complies with the Constitution. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't think we ought to uh, dismiss the Constitution as they have, but uh, but I think we need to be every bit as aggressive, yeah. and uh, and I and really a dig. Now, at the end of the day, uh, folks, also you know we need to to recognize on our, ourselves that our powers. Uh, I mean, we need to do everything that's within our power, but. If the Biden administration, you know, the White House is in Democrat hands, the agencies are in uh, Democrat hands. Whether the Justice Department follows through on on prosecutions they should pursue, whether uh, whether the administration responds in a way that's recalcitrant, uh, you know, we'll just have to see. But I, yeah. I think at the end of the day, I, I've heard Kevin McCarthy himself say that uh, that uh, and that uh, Alejandro Mayorkas should be impeached, and uh, and he should be. Uh- What's a good example you would say of um, a norm that the Democrats have decided to completely throw out the window that maybe the old Republican Party would have said, well, we're going to put that back in the neat little box. Um, but maybe this newer Republican Party that's more interested in fighting, more interested in doing things should say, turn around is fair play. What's what's a concrete example of something process or, or policy that they've had? Uh, those are challenging. And I and, but but I will say um they have uh, there has to be a p- price paid for uh, their stripping the minority of our right to decide what Republicans serve on committees. They're going to have to lose committee spots that they've uh, for people they've got. And and uh, mm-hmm. frankly, I'm reluctant to do it. I'd be re- reluctant to see it emerge as a pattern. And that's one of the problem. One of the difficulties about where we are. I don't know that I've got necessarily the answer to this. I know that we we can no longer. Uh, be passive and be steamrolled and see uh, see it be one sided where Democrats uh, are prepared to and as you have trampled uh, uh, every manner. I mean, they've offered you know they want to, some of the things they've proposed to do haven't finished them, but the the putting metal detectors outside the uh, the chamber. I, I don't I don't know what the mirror image of that is. I mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, I think uh, when they have to show up to work. <laughs> uh, I mean, to, to be sure, you yeah. know, that, I think those things will will have their own effect. But I don't want to put a metal detector outside each one of their office doors or something like that, because <laughs> yeah. we're not certainly not yeah. going to constrain our members to to continue to yeah. be treated as criminals coming or, or right. uh, anticipated criminals coming onto the floor of the house. It's, just, it's horrific. Uh, but there are, uh, you know, the, um, they they must. Uh, get a feel for the fact they cannot act as they've acted. I would say, you know, there's there's talk about when the Democrats conducted a sit-in on the floor of the House. Uh, and and you'll remember it better than I, because I was not spending my time focused on Washington when it happened. I remember it. But, uh, but you know, um, you have 
hundreds of people who've been prosecuted for obstructing an official proceeding. I can remember people always ask me how if I was frightened on January 6th. I never had occasion to be frightened. I was on the floor. But the place where I first was struck by uh, sort of a feeling of, of uh, insecurity was on the floor of the state house. And after I'd been elected, uh, when they had, they called a moral Monday protest. And I guess really the place where it got really big was after the, in the lame duck session, after Roy Cooper, a Democrat, was elected governor. Uh, and we were making some changes to recover into the legislature some power that had been delegated to the governor. And they had just a, a riot mob. At the same time, that it was going on in Wisconsin. Remember what happened there? And they were jumping up and down, and they were outside the chamber, and it was the building was shaking to the point that I thought it was going to collapse. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I had reason to be really fr- frightened. Uh, and so, you know, there's just this dual standard of justice. Americans have seen it over and over and over again. And they're fed up with it. I think if Democrats, when they do something like that, they need to be referred for prosecution. They need to be, you know, you need to have censure resolution or something. And, and I, it takes two thirds to expel somebody from Congress. So got to be mindful of what you can do. But I just think we're going to have to stay after it and we're going to have to be aggressive and we're going to have to recognize that even some things that would be distasteful, we cannot allow them to pass. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so there you've got process. Now let's talk about policy. Um, We got to know you a little bit because you recently spoke at a conference we did called Up From Chaos, Conserving American Security. And you gave what we thought was not only impressive, but just a fantastic on the substance um, and brave speech on foreign policy, your views on it. Walk us through how you've historically thought about that issue and and why you decided to come and, and take such a public stand as a fairly uh, new member of Congress, um, you know, with a more restrained and realistic foreign policy. In, uh, in the Bush administration, I was a big supporter of the Iraq invasion. I remember my father, who's elderly, since passed away, uh, sitting in his armchair, shaking his head as 2003 rolled on that. And the, and the t- lead up to that was building. I said, Dad, you got to these, these state sponsors of terrorism. And so they, you got to go in. We got to do something about it. You got to go. And he said, you don't go to war unless you have to. And um, and that was the first sort of registered data point that sort of always stuck in my head, particularly as that went awry. And, uh, and then uh, Donald Trump came along and said some things that were a little shocking to me the first couple of times I heard him from him, but he was right. And I think what happens is you get the same problem with much of Washington. Uh, people who are here get sort of they spend time here and maybe they think it's a question of expertise but they get inwardly focused and overly focused on on issues that are other than the lives of americans and it doesn't it just doesn't serve americans interests to go uh, involving the united states in military action all all over the world Uh, you know the 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 and i and i will say i i think i think the people Republican voters in particular are way ahead of us. I think they've figured stuff out that still is lacking up here. So when you know, when, when we did lend lease for Ukraine and other Eastern European countries, for people that's people maybe watching this don't know that means that the president has delivered the 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 sole discretion basically to take anything in the United States armed you know armed forces and turn it over, provide materiel to Ukraine or another Eastern European country, the last time we did that, 
was in World War II. FDR did that after Hitler had occupied Austria, occupied or split up Czechoslovakia, invaded and occupied Poland, invaded Norway and Denmark, uh, um, invaded and defeated uh, Belgium and, and France and driven the British Expeditionary Force off the coast at Dunkirk and bombed Britain for nine months and Europe was on its knees. That's when FDR did Lend-Lease. Here you have a regional conflict, bad as it is. Putin's a bad guy. Uh, and and he has no business invading that country, but and and the United States should provide porcupine type weapons to 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 help them repel the invasion. But the notion that we're going to do lend lease in those circumstances, we're going to and the United States has has I'm, I'm trying to remember if I can recall the numbers to to mind, but the United States support for the Ukrainian war dramatically exceeds by a factor of three or something like that. The, actually, it's a bigger difference than that, but it's, it's a huge disparate uh, ch- uh, gap. Europe's support. Why would the United States be more responsible than Europe to do that? So I didn't agree with Lynn Lease. I was one of 10 people to vote against that. I one of 57 people to vote against the $40 billion supplemental appropriation after we had already appropriated $14 billion or something like that. I just think it's – I don't think that, they're, that they have in mind the – the life life circumstances of the average American and their concern for their children and their grandchildren and how they will sustain this debt that we're borrowing money from China to go be the primary uh, supplier or the primary belligerent, really remote, you know, proxy belligerent in the in the Ukraine conflict. It just doesn't make sense. I think that sort of common sense is what's been lost in Washington. I think it takes people who are prepared to come up and say. Uh, I'm just not voting just because everybody says everybody votes that way. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it. I think that kind of newness is what we need. I think that's when we, Republicans take control. For us to be successful, we have to depart from that kind of rigid, uh, uh, automatic continuation of things as they have been done. So that's actually one of the really interesting things about um, the original Lend-Lease. I read this great book. It's called uh, Stalin's War. Um, was recommended to me by a colleague at the American Conservative. But basically what the big chunk in the middle of the book is about is about Lend-Lease um, and how uh, Harry Hopkins actually made the USSR a priority over American troops for receiving freshly manufactured goods. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the examples that they actually brought up in the book was the fact that um, Americans were put on butter rations because uh the soviets didn't like margarine they wouldn't deal with margarine and so that's that's when americans started using a lot of margarine because uh it was too good for the soviets and so that's what that's what the uh the americans had to use um i think there's a very interesting and a lot of people were very upset about that so there's a very interesting dichotomy with with what we're going through now um how are normal Americans, like a lot of people that live in your district, you know, when you're when you're back home, when you're talking to them, what how do they feel about this? You know, making the Ukrainian military a priority over American interests. Yeah. The the um, the weekend after the vote on the 40 billion dollar appropriation, I went to a, a district political convention, a Republican con- uh, convention and spoke for a few minutes and as is my uh, want. Probably some people would say, you know, you don't always have to be uh, quite so uh, get the the uh, dirty laundry out there. But I said, look, I, somebody in this room may be mad, uh, may be angry with me because I didn't vote with the majority. I voted in 57. 
they stood up and they gave me a standing ovation when mm-hmm. I said I didn't support the $40 billion. And subsequently, over, over the subsequent weeks, I think Republicans who voted for that have taken it on the chin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you talk about, you know, this, again, a question of who do you identify with? I voted against the ban on Russian oil. Same deal in, in the United States. What I could see, I could envision, it didn't take a whole lot of imagination to know that within a few months, Americans are going to be paying six dollars, maybe six, seven. Mm-hmm. Somebody pred- pred- predicted six. I think one of the big investment banks predicted six dollars and thirty cents by August. It may be higher than that. We're, we just crossed five dollars. Uh, that news uh, seen in the last day or so, and the American people are trying to make ends meet. And so in Europe, they haven't banned Russian oil. Mm-hmm. They're buying Russian oil. They're living on it. But in the United States, we've banned it to the detriment of Americans. And it's not even I mean, all it does is drive up the price of Russian oil and put more money in Vladimir Putin's pocket so he can wage war. Mm. What kind of idiocy is that? I think if you to the point that you made, if you are mindful at all points of the interest, not of a defense contractor, um, not of. Uh, some budget chairman, uh, you know, not budget chairman, some some chairman who's looking to get a budget, you know, or, or more power, uh, not uh, not mindful of someone who is who's just interested in sort of making things go around the world the way they should go. That's mm-hmm. that's their, sort of a sort of a conceit, if you will. But if you're focused every day on a family who's trying to get by on. You know, you got two people working in the family. Maybe they're making one hundred and thirty thousand dollars together. They got a couple of kids. They're trying to figure out how to send them to college, whatever, and and pay for gas, pay for groceries. Those are the people you need to think about. And if the answers don't, if it doesn't seem to line up, be prepared to depart from the orthodoxy and do what makes common sense. Mm. It makes all the sense in the world. What is um, you know, this I guess the second political maelstrom you've been at the center of when it was hb2 and now you're involved in foreign <laughs> it's almost like you're a <laughs> magnet <laughs> what, what what has that felt like uh you know maybe in small ways and big ways um being at the at the center of the opposition to something dc has decided to do um and often i mean you know i want to talk about the the vote where it was 57 because i thought that was the dam breaking on some sensibility in the republican caucus and it's really important and exciting to see but you've been in in votes a lot smaller than that you've been in groups of, of 15 or 8 or 10 what's that like i probably made like? you know then and if you took in a, a single one of them that maybe uh it might have been you know in any given case i'm not Certain, I was right every time, and maybe I made an error. There's another, maybe the first one that I did that uh, up here was uh, I was 90 days before it ultimately was done. I was the person who made the motion for Liz Cheney to be uh, removed as conference chairman. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that, that didn't go over well with some people. And then after we had but now the, everyone's on board. <laughs> well, and I, I think there's, I think there's something in this, which is uh, people. I didn't do it in a, in a nasty or belligerent way. I did it as professionally as I knew how. But I, I was certainly prepared to do it. And I did offer it. We ended up having a long conference where people all said what they thought. It eventually led, I think. Uh, uh, Leader McCarthy should have let the you know, should have sent her packing right then. And we would have been spared a lot over the next 90 days. People all remember that at some level, and and then I, you know when when John Katko, uh, who was happened to be the ranking member on a committee on which I'm on uh, I'm serving, um, you know was the 
first Republican vote on the board to pass the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill, which resolved the Democrats' legislative impasse, which Mm -hmm. they had on their side, and let them put the build back broke package through the (laughs) through the through the house the next conference i moved to remove john catco as ranking member of homeland security Mm -hmm. that didn't get anywhere either and the point is i I think you know i don't know where that all goes i'm not going to try to be be, uh, bedevil people just for the sake of bedeviling them but i am going to uh, i'm never going to fail to do what i think is the right thing on issues of, of great significance. And I don't need to be in Washington. Uh, frankly, it's not economically advantageous for me to be in Washington. Uh, I'm not the, a spring chicken, maybe, you know, be, but for while I'm here, I'm going to do everything I can to see if we can turn in a different direction and start for the first time. Actually, President Trump is, again, for me, a person who really, I was not an early adopter, by the way. But uh, I didn't speak against him. But but once he he began governing as President Trump governed, I saw that it, it was that was somebody responding to the interests of the American people. And I think we ought to stay on that line. And if somebody up here doesn't like it, it they really there's not a thing they can do to me except get me defeated in an election. And if so, so much the better. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm hearing here is that you're a trendsetter. You get you get to the issue like six months to a couple years before everybody else. I don't know that I, I, I that would be a conceit that I won't engage in. And I think that's going to be one last one one other point to all of this. And I think it's tied, but it, it maybe is a separately worth worth articulating. I have great. I have a very strong belief that our the the and well the Bible says it that the the most egregious sin is pride. And if you begin to think you're all that, uh, you're pretty close to being worthless. If you have some humility, figure out who else can lead, who can make this point, then help them get there. Uh, I think just the having this, uh, I'm not saying it for all that well, I just think humility is is probably the most valuable thing you can retain. Mm. It's a good word. Foreign policy was, I would say, maybe one of three or four core issues that defined how President Trump changed the Republican Party. Another one was immigration. And it's it's sort of funny because Republican base has been asking for Republicans in D.C. to do something about immigration for 40 years. And Republicans either, you know, conveniently ignore it or say, oh, you want us to do something about immigration? That's great. We're going to do some amnesty now. Thank you. We're um, going to do some bipartisan <laughs> immigration reform. That's right. What, what yeah. is it? Comprehensive. That's uh, yeah. Comprehensive immigration reform. Yeah, yeah. It means exactly. capitulate. Yeah, it means... You can, your wallet's going to be a lot lighter. That's what it tends to feel like. Um, how are you thinking about immigration? Obviously, you mentioned that Homeland Security is going to be one of the committees to watch um, in the new Congress. How do you think about the immigration issue holistically, border crisis, legal immigration, the whole nine? The president had it right. President Trump had it right. Tucker Carlson is the person who right now is the exponent or the, the person who speaks to this, who I think has it right. And here's, and again, what I think, uh, what I think, captures my attention by tucker is the degree to which he said he, he you look he, he could break and sort and sort of start covering himself and try to make sure he keeps his big show and makes money and so forth he's assumed risk he has uh, reckoned with the fact and maybe it'd be it's a it's it's a more uh, courageous stand in some ways than what i've been talking about you know exposing yourself to hazard 
because um, I, I really don't see that I'd suffer much egregious loss if I lose an office. He's talking, he's making, you know, he's got a big living and a big, uh, you know, whatever. But he has correctly articulated that he's not going to be shut up by people who say something about him, who, who, who smear him with terms that are inapt. You know, they try to conflate the the lunatic who acted in Buffalo, who had this, that, the, the replacement theory that is a grotesque, racist idea, the notion that uh, whites are being replaced by blacks. That, and then they, but they try to conflate that with what Tucker Carlson has, has talked about, which is that Democrats have articulated repeatedly and over a long period of time that they want to draw in uh, immigrants from abroad. It has nothing to do with their race, but people from abroad to replace their voters because they know that they're offending people in the United States. They're not serving the interest, the political interests of the people in the United States. They're not the same idea. And there's nothing wrong with calling that out. Um, it does not serve the interest. Look, if it was never clear before, then under the Biden administration, when they've completely erased the southern border and utterly dropped any pretense of enforcing American immigration law, it has become clear that however big you let it get, the surge will get bigger because there are, you know, there millions and millions of people outside the United States that would that will come in if there's no orderly immigration system maintained. That's what we're seeing. And it is there's no way same deal. Think about the folks back home. Think about the fentanyl deaths. They talk about fentanyl being the notion of it like as drug addiction. It's not about drug addiction. A, a, a sugar packet of that stuff would kill 15 or 20 people mm. or more, 100 people. I figure some I can't even keep the numbers in mind, but it's massive. It's a mass poisoning. It's a weapon of mass destruction. And the stuff's coming. Chinese precursors are going to drug labs in Mexico where they're lacing products with it. And then kids here who are taking a Xanax or they're going to get street pills or whatever because they've that's kind of become a thing. They're dying in, in, in you know, mass numbers uh, from fentanyl. I think the number is, is that there was more fent there was enough fentanyl confiscated by the federal government this year alone um, enough to kill every single American. Actually, I've heard that multiple times over every single American. And so that's what they've captured. And then the Democrats try to have a special hearing to say, well, that happens at the ports of entry. The drugs only come through the ports of entry. And we're capturing it all. Therefore, you don't need to worry about the 750,000 gotaways, people who have never been interdicted by Border Patrol, who are coming across the border. They couldn't possibly be carrying when you when a little packet like that will kill, kill hundreds or thousands. Uh, they couldn't possibly be carrying any drugs. Come on. How stupid do you think we are? That's the whole point is the American people are a lot less stupid than the politicians think they are. Mm -hmm. And they're, it's clear to them that that kind of unrestrained, uncontrolled, unstructured migration into the United States is damaging to the American polity, to the social fabric, to everything about America. And the question you have to keep on asking is, who's, for whom is that policy humane? It's not humane for Americans. It's not humane for the kids who are dying of fentanyl poisoning. It's not humane for the migrants who are being raped on the way or dying in the desert or paying the cartel or entering into indentured servitude or perhaps sex trafficking in order to pay the fees to the cartel. None of that's humane. And the, and the notion, and so American people understand it. And I think it's, I mean, it's amazing. I still wonder whether the Republican conference in the majority will do what we need to do. Mm -hmm. to fix the immigration loopholes. But we better.
one of the things that was impressive was that um, Leader McCarthy completely took amnesty off the table. They said this new Congress will not do amnesty. I hope he's uh, he stays strong on that. And if, I mean, he didn't have to say it. And the fact that he did is is somewhat refreshing. I think I think that I think at least the the real chicanery, which is like you know every few months you'd hear for the past decade, it feels like oh there's a group of bipartisan senators that are working. It's like oh. Oh, good boy. Here we go again. Always uh, con- I'm sure it's not coincidence, but the same few uh, Republican senators always seem to be in the groups. They love to be in the groups. I think those are the people that, as I said, they like to orchestrate things around mm-hmm, the world. They, mm-hmm. they, they're, they're impressed with the wisdom of their own selves, and they, want it, they think they know how things ought to mm-hmm. go. Uh, they, I think uh, my experience has been that those uh, Republican sen- uh, senators seem to have their minds and their eyes more on uh, corporate contributors uh, than they do on that family I described. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, I think common wisdom and humility will guide you in the right direction, and I'm not sure they have enough of that Speaking in of the com- House of Lords. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of common wisdom, um, one issue that it feels like you know, people in both parties for uh, past few decades uh, at the electorate level have always kind of scratched their head about, but people in D.C. had a single mind about uh, was trade, maybe economics more broadly. Um, that was, I would say, the third element of, of the revolution that President Trump brought to the Republican Party. How are you how are you thinking about that issue in the new Congress and, and in your own mind? Um, I, it is another issue for me personally on which President Trump's uh, years had an, an enormous effect on the way I thought about it. Uh, I, it, you know, when I was, although I didn't ever have occasion really to act on this, but in terms of international trade, my opinions before I came to Congress, well, before President Trump came to office, be better, more accurate to say, were a probably doctrinaire free trader that, 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 uh, you know, the stuff you'd read in National Review for a lot of years, you'd get the idea. Uh, you thought you knew how everything was you know, most efficient and it'll all balance itself out and you'll reach equilibrium. GDP line goes up. Absolutely. Everything's, everything's better for everybody. <laughs> yeah. But what you what I came to realize and I watched President Trump and what he's doing is, you know, uh, I think markets ought to be lightly regulated here in the United States. But they but you have regulation. I've practiced law over 29 years in which I enforce rules about fraud and, and things like that. Uh, there's no such force in the in the world, and and consequently you have you have multiple multipolar you know uh, countries all over the place of varying strengths. You got China stealing our intellectual property, sending in uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Fake goods, uh, you know, uh, dumping cheap goods, dumping cheap goods, but but knockoffs and stealing mm-hmm. and and imitations that are I can't even think of the right term, but it's, but uh, but anyway, I I've seen some. Great business. There's one great business that comes to my mind as a big corporate citizen in North Carolina. Implies a lot of uh, employs a lot of people, and they've seen uh, the Chinese replicated their building. I mean, they 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 copied their building in order to be able to make knockoffs. That's the word I think I'm looking for of what they produce and send them in the United States. They they litigated against them for years before the International Trade Commission and got them you know blackballed. So they but the, the point is. Tariff policy is a is a substitute for the absence, in a global sense, of having some government to regulate things. Mm-hmm. If China's going to engage in in underhanded and dirty and unfair competitive practices, the only thing you can do is respond with something. So, 
Uh, I, and and you, you look at NAFTA and the effect on North Carolina. They may say it comes to equilibrium. The market's going to create an equilibrium at some point. But in the meantime, the furniture industry in North Carolina was destroyed. The textile industry was destroyed. And that didn't that didn't get evenly distributed in terms of cost on people. It got visited upon certain people. And their lives were changed. And their prospects for their children were changed. And so I've come to believe that, it, you know, watch out. You say this word. Economic nationalism makes a lot of sense. <laughs> President Trump said, I am a nationalist, and the media, <laughs> media's heads blew off. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being a nationalist. It means that you're, you're – here's a remarkable idea. This government under the consent of the governed, uh, that's, that's what makes – that's what legitimizes a government, but it ought to be serving the governed, right, serving those people who are electing the government. Why is that so crazy? But that's, you're supposed to serve K Street. That's why. <laughs> I think that's I think that's yeah. exactly what the problem is. And yeah. again, uh, I think if you just remain humble and remember who you're serving, uh, you'll probably be led in the right direction. And then you've got to be not too reticent about speaking up. You don't have. You've got to develop the independence of mind to say there's you know the leaders that are in maybe ranking members or chairing people of of committees or the leadership who've uh, come. Uh, there's there's no they have no monopoly on wisdom far from it and uh, and you've got to be prepared to strike out on a different course if they're wrong congressman uh that was absolutely incredible uh, i think you're you're quite impressive and, and lucid for especially a freshman congressman but frankly more than i'd say 99 percent of the people at that building over there um thank you for coming on our podcast and thank you for everything you do for the country thank you for us rob thank you nick i appreciate what you guys are doing uh, you're bringing up a new generation that's what uh, i think is the hardest part of all and i always say this my greatest respect goes uh to uh young people who are conservatives uh, who are fighting it out on or maintaining their uh, independence of thought on on campuses around the country? Um, those guys determine the future, and um, and I'm hopeful for it. And so I'm hopeful for them. Thank you for what you're doing to nurture them. I told you that guy would be pretty impressive. Uh, thank you to Congressman Bishop for coming on. Thank you to his staff for helping make it happen. Uh, it's a pretty big deal for a member to carve out an hour plus of their time on a weekday during business hours to come sit down with these rinky dink 25 year olds and their little podcast um but, you're cheating you're not 25 oh uh, yeah i'm 24 my apologies <laughs> um but it was it was incredible we hope you guys enjoyed it we hope you're paying closer attention to congressman bishop now um because he's he's someone worth paying attention to we think um as always rate and review the podcast if you think interviews like this are useful uh we were just told uh, uh recently about some pretty interesting things that happened after someone listened uh to an episode of our podcast so um podcast makes uh makes news i'll put it that way actually the new york times cited it a couple days ago so i guess what we have to stop being you know humble about this stuff um, yeah but uh anyway uh, thank you guys as always for listening. Rate and review. Go to AmericanMoment.org and we will see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. 